All right, why don't you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. And just as a reminder, um, kind of what we're following with, uh, you know, mask stuff, if, uh, just follow the CDC on this one. If, uh, if you've been vaccinated and you don't want to wear your mask, you don't have to wear your mask, okay? Uh, there you go. <laughs> I see that right there. So go right ahead. That's between you and the Lord. Um, you know, and, and again, we'll do... <laughs> We'll see how it goes on as time goes on, right? We'll see what happens with all this. But uh, right now, that's just kind of where we're at. So, all right, we got Genesis chapter 35. You know, last week we talked about uh, the domino effect of disobedience. You know, although it was, a, it was a tough passage to read, admittedly, we got into some very uncomfortable topics. Uh, and thank you for coming back this week. Uh, but it was a very vivid illustration of how easily things can spin out of control once we commit a few poor decisions in our lives. You know, things can, can devolve rapidly when we make some bad decisions. And we saw that last week in Dinah, you know, what happened to her, and then we see what the boys did uh, when they decided to murder all the men. I mean, it just, man, talk about just a bad chapter of life, right? That was just ugly the way that it went down. You know, but this week, why I'm so happy is because chapter 35, it reminds us that even in the midst of our worst messes, you know, God doesn't abandon us. Um, Like I said last week, he allows us to reap what we've sown. You know, when we make some bad decisions, it it shouldn't be a surprise that he allows the consequences to hit and for things to be difficult for a time. Uh, But often he gives us another chance, you know, and allows us to plant some new seed that will eventually lead to blessing in our lives once again. So that's the hope that we have. And that's what this chapter is is really going to focus on is the fact that even if you've blown it, even if you've made some terrible mistakes, okay, and there's been a time of suffering in your life because of some things that are happening, the Lord allows us to have the opportunity so that we can have blessings in our lives once again. So today we're going to get a glimpse of that in Jacob's life. So In chapter 35, verse 1, we see that in the very first verse, you know, right after all those terrible consequences, you know, we read in verse 1, God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. We're going to have to stop there because there is a lot in that one verse. There's a lot of things that the Lord, just as I was reading it, that man, just that simple sentence how much God spoke in that. First of all, notice it says, God said to Jacob. Remember, this was just after a period of intense sin. They had just, they had blown it. Like I said, you know, there was consequences because he didn't go to Bethel like he should have. He stopped in the other places, lived right among the heathen. And then there was all the disaster that happened from that. The sons committed all those sins and lying and deceiving the men and then they killed those men there. There was just all of this, right? And then in chapter 35, we hear God said to Jacob. It was God who initiated reconciliation to Jacob here. It was God. It wasn't Jacob said to God. That, that shocks me here, okay? Because that's the way we think it should work, right? It's like, they just made a huge mistake. It should be Jacob saying to God. But instead, it's God said to Jacob. Man, if you ever want to learn what grace is, that is grace. That is undeserved favor. Because in our minds, and really my theology, this verse doesn't fit too well sometimes. Because I would tell someone, you need to repent. You need to turn from what you're doing, and you need to cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, right? That's the advice I would typically give someone. But here, God doesn't do that. 
In this case, it was God said to Jacob. He initiated reconciliation between the two. That's benevolent of God. That's gracious that he did that. It made me think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is an initiator of reconciliation. He didn't just like, you know, create everything. And then when Adam and Eve blew it, and then, you know, sin raged through mankind for all these centuries, he didn't say, well, you guys figure it out. I give you a perfect world. I give you a perfect circumstance. You're the one who sinned. You guys figure it out. You, you come to me. I'm not going to talk to you till you reach out to me first, right? Like we do when we get into a fight. You have that standoff that happens for a while, you know, sometimes days. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk. And then finally somebody caves in, right? Usually it's the guy. But <laughs> in my experience, but it's, it's one of those things that it's like God initiates reconciliation. And he did so. He does the same with us. You know, just like that verse that I said right there, you know, even though we don't deserve that sometimes, God still initiates reconciliation. I think of how many times, you know, somebody has stumbled into this church where they've maybe been, you know, been in a situation where they've been making some mistakes for a while. They've been living like they didn't know the Lord or, or maybe they walked away from the Lord for a period of time in their life. And there were some horrific consequences. And for whatever reason, they came back to church and they show up this one week for whatever it is. And they pop in and then the Lord just speaks to them mightily that day. I mean, it always blows me away. It, it just shocks me sometimes how God is so perfect about that, that somebody who doesn't even know who we are as a church, they'll, they'll pop in here and they'll show up for a service. And then they'll tell me afterwards, you know, their story. And then it just lines up perfectly with what, you know, as we just go verse by verse, it just lines up perfectly for what circumstance they were going through in life. And I just think of, man, how gracious of God. You know, that you, can, that you can even be in a situation where maybe you have been doing some things really bad and then he initiates reconciliation. And sometimes he does that just by you get placed in a situation where you're exposed to the word of God and you can sense the presence of the Holy Spirit just drawing you, just as we sang today, right? Come just as you are, hear his spirit calling you. Just you can sense it, it's thick. You know, you can sense the Lord pulling you back to him and saying, you know, I want this relationship restored. He is an initiator of grace. And we must never forget that, never. Secondly, not only did God said to Jacob, but God said to Jacob. That's the second thing that I notice. It didn't say God said to Israel. Remember, he was already renamed. God had already given him a new name. This was a couple chapters ago. But after this episode, it says, God said to Jacob. What that tells me is Jacob had, by the sins that he had committed and the things that he was doing, he reverted back to his old ways. And it was not rightly representing his new identity as Israel. Remember what Israel meant when he named him that. He says, your new name shall be Israel. And what does that mean? God fights for you, basically. God fights for you. I also see that he says, get up. Get up. You know, when we blow it in life, there's a time where we need to get back into his word 
so that he can admonish us to get up once again. It's his word that compels us to get up, to pick ourselves up off the ground, to get out of the pig pen. It's his word that speaks up and says, get up. Stop being consumed by that. It's time for you to get out of that. We can't remain in the state that we're in with that defeated frame of mind where we feel like we're cast down and we're separated from God. It's him who initiates contact and he says, get up, stop living that way. Then he tells him, go to Bethel. It's in his word that we're reminded what he has already told us to do in the first place before we blew it. When you get back in the world, I'm sorry, in the word, once you've been separated from the Lord and there's been a distance in your life where you don't feel that closeness, and then you get back in his word and his word speaks clearly to you, go to Bethel. And remember, that was the place he told them to go originally before he took his detour. And then all the consequences and everything fell apart in his life. And what does he tell them? He tells them once again, go where I told you to go. He doesn't change the route. He doesn't say, you know, now go to this other place. He just reminds him, this is the place I told you to go. Now go. I love the fact that he doesn't even say, why did you go there? I told you not to go to Sukkoth. I I didn't tell you to go to Shechem. I didn't tell you to buy land and build houses and try and live there. I told you to go to Bethel. He doesn't like give him a lecture about his failures. He just simply says, go to Bethel like he did before he went to the other place. God's word just reminds us. It speaks to us that way. It doesn't lecture us. It just tells us, do what I'm telling you to do. And God does that often when you're exposed to his word. The fifth thing that I see is, he said, and settle there. Go to Bethel and settle there. In other words, plant roots, stay. That's where I want you to stay. Go to Bethel and settle there. And finally, he says, build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. It's interesting that he did not say, build me another altar. You notice that? He doesn't say to go to Bethel and stay there and build me another altar. Notice how he he approaches that. He says, go to Bethel, build me another altar, build the, I'm sorry, build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He's speaking of himself in the third person. I think we can learn from that. I think there's some instruction in that. It's as if he was saying, start over, Build another altar to that God you once knew so well. Who was that God that you knew so well at that time? See, he took him back to a very painful place in his life. That painful place was, it was the first time Jacob had been out on his own. He was fearing for his life. He didn't know where God wanted him to go. He had no money. He had nothing with him. He lost everything. He left his family and he's laying on a rock. And remember, God appeared to him that night in his lowest of lowest points in his life up to that moment. That's when God appeared to him. And it was when God gave him the vision of the ladder. It was God, you know, who told him, I want you to go here. And, you know, that's where you're going to find your wife. He, he gave him specific direction. He says, I want you to return back to that God. Do you remember that guy? 
Do you remember that guy that, that was with you at your lowest point? Do you remember that God that was with you when you, were, when you didn't know what you're going to do, you know, 30 years prior to this? Do you remember that guy? Do you remember that God that radically changed your life? Return back to that God. You know, it makes me think of the fact that most of us initially came to the Lord because of some crisis that we were facing at that time. I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who came to the Lord because their life was so great that they just wanted to surrender their life to Jesus. I, I, I've been thinking hard about it. I don't know that I've ever met somebody with that testimony. My life was just so good that I had to go to church and I had to surrender my life to the Lord and just thank Him for all the wonderful things He's done in my life. Maybe you guys have met some people with that testimony. The testimony I usually hear is, I came to church because I was broken. I read my Bible because I was lost. I was desperate for help. Most people come to the Lord in brokenness and crisis. I'm sure there are some who maybe have that testimony. I've just never met them. The problem is, because we do enter into a relationship with the Lord under those circumstances, once that crisis passes, often we stop depending on Him. And, and that becomes a pattern in so many Christians' lives. It's, it's a danger for all of us as Christians. It's not just like that happens at the beginning. It's, it's a continual thing. You, you may come to salvation through crisis and the Lord saves you and does all these things. You have a radical transformation. You're all excited about Jesus and then things kind of level off in your life and things start getting kind of normal or better or whatever it is. And next thing you know, you just don't need Jesus as much as you once did. So you don't necessarily need to you know, read your Bible. You don't necessarily need to pray. You don't necessarily need to go to church. You don't necessarily need to, you know, whatever it is. It's just like you're just not in crisis mode anymore. So you just kind of, that relationship just starts to break down and it's not as intimate, it's not as close as it once was. God has a way of letting us steer that boat long enough until we get ourselves back into trouble. He has a way of letting us. If, if, you, want to, if you want to neglect the relationship and not keep it up and not continue to maintain it so that we have a close relationship you know, at all times... I'll let you walk away. I'll let you, I'll let you do whatever you want to do. I'm not saying that you're losing your salvation or anything, but he'll let us just kind of steer the boat. He'll let us go through the waves and through everything else that he knows is out there, the dangers that he doesn't want you to do. You know, you're trying to take a canoe out into the ocean. He's like, I'll let you do it if that's what you want to do. You can row all you want. But that crisis will come again. And when the crisis comes, you'll turn back to me at that time. You'll remember You'll remember the time when I was with you when Esau was chasing you. You'll remember that again. And that's what God is reminding Jacob of at that moment. He's saying, turn back to that God that was there for you when you originally turned to me. When your life was in crisis. Turn back to that God. Verse 2, let's see how Jacob responds this time. In verse 2 it says, So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. 
Verse 2, we finally see Jacob act like a spiritual leader, like the spiritual leader he was supposed to be all along. He doesn't ask them if they have foreign gods among themselves. He doesn't say, okay, family meeting. Okay, do any of you have foreign gods? Do you have little idols in your closet? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it at all. He simply tells them, he commands them, get rid of the idols that I know you have. Of course he had seen them. Of course he had seen people worshiping these false gods for all that time. There's a saying in business that I like, and it's, we use it often in business. It says, whatever you allow becomes the standard. Whatever you allow becomes the standard as a leader. If you allow people to cut corners and you allow people to do certain things, that becomes the standard that everybody drops down to because you've allowed that to happen. Well, spiritually speaking, it's the same thing. Whatever you allow becomes the standard. And as a spiritual leader, you have to be the one sometimes to say, get rid of the idols. I know you have them. Get rid of them. They're not welcome in this house. They're not welcome in this family. Get rid of them. They don't belong here because if you allow it, it becomes normalized. And next thing you know, everybody's got idols. That's what happened at this point. Everybody in that tribe was worshiping false gods, and they all had their little idols. Do you remember where the idol came from, where it started? Rachel. She stole her father's idol on the way out. Did you ever read anything that says that Rachel ever said to Jacob, it was me, and destroying it? Nothing, right? The Bible's silent. I don't know if that happened or not, but it's my hunch. I can't be dogmatic about this. I believe that that was the standard that was set. Rachel, his beloved wife, had the idols. And then others followed that lead. Man, never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the power of influence. I bring this verse up often because I want you to remember this. You need to commit this to memory. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Do not be deceived. And, and it's your own heart that's going to try to deceive you. You're going to try and make excuses. Oh, they're really not that bad. I can still hang out with them. And, you know, they can do their thing and I'll do my thing. And it's no big deal. You know, I'll, I'll still be able to be in that circumstance but not give in to it. I'll be the light in the midst of darkness. No, you will be a light hidden by shade is what you're going to be. And eventually you'll be right in the darkness with them. You know, yeah, we are supposed to storm the gates of hell, but we're not supposed to live there. <laughs> you know, we're not supposed to go in and, and set up residence. We're, we're supposed to deliver people from that. We're pulling people out is what we're doing. We're not living there. We're not becoming like them. We're not, we're not trying so hard to become like them that we lose our identity as believers. Man, be careful. Then on top of that, so they had the, the idols that they brought with them. But on top of that, they moved to a pagan surrounding that God never told them to go. And guess what they were doing? Worshiping idols, right? So they allowed it to come into their home. It spread among the community. Then they lived. They decided to set up their homes in the middle of a pagan environment where everyone was worshiping false gods. Next thing you know, they all started becoming just like the people they surrounded themselves with. 
They started transforming into those same people. But when you read back on, you know, verse 2 and verse 3, man, what a picture of a really a powerful passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. What an example of turning from sin, turning to God, and clothing themselves in Christ. Ephesians 4.20 says, But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So as believers, he's saying, put off that old man or woman. Take it off. Like, like clothing, take it off. Throw it away. Burn it. That's not who you are anymore. That person that was corrupted in your former conduct. Take off that old man and put on the new man that Christ has made you. Notice that too. It says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God. When did that creation according to God happen? When you were born again. When you were born again, you were created to be that man or woman that is now walking in the likeness of Christ. That's the clothing you've been given to put on. He says, take off that old man, put on the new man, the one that God created, not your formal way of li living, Put on the new one. Then with urgency in verse 3, notice it says, we must. He doesn't say, hey, what do you guys think about going to Bethel? What do you think? Is this the time? Do we do it now? Is this, is this convenient for everyone? You guys all on board? Let's vote. Hey, who's ready to go to Bethel? Do you want to go? No, this time he's urgent. Why? Because his life has been destroyed from compromise. He's like, we must go. He doesn't give him an option as a leader. He's like, we're out of here. This is it. We're going to go this time. What we have to do. And he tells them, I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Do you notice the difference in Jacob? Man. He finally remembers the faithfulness of God. He finally remembers how gracious God has been to him. He finally gets it. And he testifies to all of them of God's faithfulness to him. That's not a weak testimony there at all. He says, I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. That's not like sugarcoating it. That's not just like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah. I go to church. Sure, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's, he's my Lord. Yeah, I, I believe all that stuff. No, he's like, listen up here. I'm going to build him an altar because that God has been with me everywhere I have gone. He has been with me in the day of my distress. He has been with me at my very, very worst. If you only knew the places God has been with me and he has not abandoned me, even though I deserve to be abandoned. I have blown it over and over and over. I have made huge mistakes. And yet he still counts me as his son or daughter. That's the type of boldness you hear from someone who has recently been restored by the Lord. 
That's somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a while that went through a really hard time. And they're never going back. They're not going back to that way of living. They're not ashamed of their testimony about Christ. They're not, they're not sugarcoating it so it becomes less offensive to people who don't believe. They're like, no, I've lived that way and I don't want anything to do with it ever again. Jesus has been with me at my worst. And I'll build an altar to him wherever I go. He's my God. And he's been faithful to me. That's somebody who has had their t- life touched in dramatic ways, even at their worst behavior. How did they respond to this exhortation? Verse 4, Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. (laughs) Now, that's the goal of preaching, that I effectively communicate all that Jesus has done for me, his faithfulness to me in my own life, while encouraging others to do the same. So that they'll repent, they'll turn from their false gods, they'll bury them in the place where they left their old life behind. That's my goal. I want to effectively communicate what God has done for me in my life. I want to share that with you as I share the word of God. I want that to encourage you to embrace him the same way. And I want you to take those false gods that are in your life and I want you to bury them in your old life. It's done. It's dead. It's gone. They're not coming with me in my new life. I'm not bringing them along. I will tell you, I wish it said he burnt them and destroyed them. I wish it had said that because it would have been a much more powerful message that he gave. But that's not what it says. I don't know why. I don't know what the reason was. I'll trust the Lord to judge his own servant in this case. But what I will tell you is he made an effort to leave those things behind. Here's the reason, though, I would, I, would, I would charge you to never just try to hide something in your old life instead of dealing with it radically. I think it's a mistake sometimes to try and bury things in your, old, in your past instead of destroying them completely. The first thing is, is because you open the door for you to fall back into that same temptation. If, say, for instance, you're struggling with something in particular, if you're just trying to bury it, but you're not destroying that thing from your life, not ending the relationship completely, you know, not, you know, whatever it is, getting rid of whatever it was that was bringing that sin into your life. If you're not taking decisive action, and if you're just burying it, you know where you buried it. It's like if you're an alcoholic and you're like, you know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to put this stuff out in the barn because it's not welcome in my house. Well, guess what's going to happen when that urge and the temptation comes again? You're going to find yourself meandering towards the barn. You'll find some other reasons to be in the barn. And eventually one day things will get so bad, you will go back to the place that you hid that bottle, won't you? We've all done it. We've all fallen into that trap. It's a dangerous thing to try and bury something that God is telling you to destroy. Okay? If you're going to struggle with it, you pour it into the toilet, man. You get rid of it. You smash the bottle. You do whatever you have to do to get rid of it completely. The second thing is, you don't ever want that to be on earth and become a stumbling block to someone else. I don't want somebody digging up my old past sins and then it becoming a stumbling block to them. 
It'd be like if I were struggling with pornography or something and I tried to hide that within my home and one day my boys stumbled upon it. I don't want that. I don't want that to affect their life. There's some things that you don't just hide. There's some things you destroy because you don't want it to hurt someone else. You get rid of it because you understand how destructive it was in your own life. Now look at how things changed in verse 5 once they took these actions. In verse 5 it says, When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, which is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he's fleeing from his brother. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence to the timing of all of that. It says, when they set out. In other words, when they took decisive action. They're changing directions. It doesn't say before they set out that God put this terror in the heart of the people that were were going to attack them. It was when they set out, God did that. Sometimes it requires action before you see God do the things that need to be done. You can't just assume that he's going to do it for you and then you'll take action. Well, God, if you, you know, if you change this first, then I'll obey you. No, sometimes he says, obey, and then I will change. When they set out, a tear from God came over the cities around them. They took action, they repented from their sins, and God became that El Elohe Israel once again. Remember, God who fights for Israel. How does God fight for Israel? He fights different than we do. Remember? When, the first time when Jacob realized that that's what he called God, he said, God, the God who fights for Israel. The first fight that God had on Jacob's behalf was with who? Esau. He was terrified that Esau was going to kill him as he was coming back into town. And what did God do? Did God, like, did God put terror in Esau's heart so that he wouldn't come out? No, that particular circumstance, that wasn't the right way. You know what he did in his heart? He softened Esau's heart so that there would be reconciliation. God doesn't fight the same way every time when he's fighting our battles. Sometimes he changes hearts. Sometimes he strikes fear in people's hearts. Sometimes he kills people. I'm just, you know what I mean? In the Bible, that God fights differently in different circumstances. You know why? Because he's fighting our battles and we're not. I, I, man, just this has been ringing in my, in my ears for a couple weeks, just with struggles at work and different things going on. It's like, Lord, I need you to be that God who fights for me because I can't defend myself in these circumstances. I can't, I can't make that person stop doing what they're doing or whatever else it is. I can't control that. And if I resort to fighting them the way that they're fighting me, it's just going to make the situation worse. It's hard to let God be the one who defends you. But as I was listening to that song this morning, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, it's by Phil Wickham, man. It's just really been ministering to me that it's the Lord. It's, it's the Lord who fights our battles. And any time we choose to draw the sword on our own behalf, it's going to be bad. 
We're going to mess it up. We're not good with the sword. We're like Peter chopping off ears, man. (laughs) And it's got to be the Lord that says, put away the sword. Pop that ear back on. Now let me fix this. He fights differently. Sometimes he fights in ways that we don't understand because even in that example, right, where the Lord, he was fighting in a way that Peter didn't understand. He had to be wronged for forgiveness to exist for all of us. He had to die. He fights differently than we do. And his ways are not our ways and we don't always understand and we can't make sense of them. But he's the one who fights for us. It's comforting for me to know that if we obey God, even if he sends us in the midst of hostile places, like he was saying, by him saying, you know, that he struck fear in the heart of the cities around them, that means they wanted to attack him. He was sending them into an area where Jacob knew he was going to be attacked. It was not friendly territory. God sent him into those areas, but he went before him and did the work before he got there. And Jacob's responsibility was, just obey me and move. Just do it. I will do the rest. I will fight for you. I take comfort in that because I want to know that God is the one who fights for me because I don't want my strengths to be my only hope in protecting myself. I don't want that. I don't want that to be my only hope is me. There are some situations in life where you don't have the strength or the resources to fight for yourself. I need somebody who's bigger than me. I need somebody who fights differently. I need God. I need the Lord to help me. And if I have to rely only upon my own strength and resources, I'm in trouble. I want that day for that to be the day of the Lord that when trouble arrives or enemies attack that he's got it under control even if I don't understand why it's happening I want to know he's the one fighting for me and trust him in that in verse 8 Deborah the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel so Jacob named it Alan Bakuth God appeared to Jacob Again, after he returned from Adam Aram, and he, pl- and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you. And kings will descend from you. I will give you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac. And I will give you the land to your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him and the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set a marker at that place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and anointed it with oil. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now, I'm sure if you just read that, you're thinking, this sounds really familiar. The promises had already been given. The commission had already been given. He told them what to do. The altar had already been built. There was another altar. The oil had already been poured on it. And even the new name had already been given before. All of that had happened before. Why? Why did God do it again? I 
I'll give you my answer since none of you gave the answer. <laughs> You're like, you want me to talk? Sometimes God has to do in a work in our sometimes God has to do a work in our lives over and over again before it sticks. Aren't we that way? You know, it's it's like I think of the parable of the soils, you know, they call it the parable of the sower, but I, I think it's the parable of the soils is what it really is. If you remember in the parable of the soils, there was seed that sprung up quickly, but then it says when the heat came, it withered away because there was no root in it. I think a lot of times that as new believers, we're that kind of soil. It's on rocky ground. You know, we... we enter into a relationship with the Lord and there's rapid growth. Our, our mind starts changing quickly and we're, we're super excited about Jesus and we're telling all of our friends and family and we're being persecuted you know, for the Lord and we're happy about it because we're just excited to be going to heaven, right? And our sin's forgiven. There's that excitement about that stage, right? But so many of those people quickly go away. Problems happen, and next thing you know, they're not going to church anymore because God didn't permanently fix all their problems. It's that, it's that no depth of root, no deep roots. In cases like that, I believe that there are some people who are truly saved. Not all of them are, you know, born again. Some of them are just excited about, you know, the Lord and the potential of things to come and the promises that somebody gave them. And some people are, maybe they're not born again, but some people are born again and they still go through that whole phase. And I believe that in those situations, God often gives us redos in order to make the change stick. He just lets us go through it again. Just lets us go through it again. Different, maybe, maybe the same circumstances. Maybe it's different circumstances. But it's like you're in the same place once again. You're like, God, why do I have to keep on going through these things? He's like, I need it to stick. Because you hold on to it for just a little bit and then it falls off. I need it to stick. I need it to become part of who you are and not just based on your circumstances being good for you to follow me. I need it to stick. I need you to have roots. Verse 16, let's finish this chapter. It says, Then they set out from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and her labor was difficult. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, do not, do, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. With her last breath, for she was dying, she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is the marker at Rachel's grave still today. What a sad ending for Rachel. You know, remember, this was, this was Jacob's favorite wife. This was his, his prized possession. What was supposed to be one of the happiest days of their life with her having a second child ended up being a terrible day and one that was going to be her very last as she gave birth. As the child was born, she looked at that child and all she could see was Ben-Oni, which is son of my sorrow. That's what she named him, son of my sorrow. Maybe it was sorrow in the sense that she would never see him grow up. She knew she was dying. Maybe it was sorrow in the sense of, you're killing me, kid. I, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was son of my sorrow. That's what she saw. 
I love the fact that Israel at that moment recognized he needed to take immediate action on that child's behalf. She named him son of my sorrow. Israel stepped and said, no. This is son of my right hand. His name shall be Benjamin. Can you imagine what it would have been like for that child to spend his entire life named son of my sorrow? That that was his identity. That forever he would think the guilt of, because of my birth, my mother died. And I broke her heart. Can you imagine what kind of path that that kid would have had? We all have the responsibility to help others' lives be redefined for God's glory, no matter what their past was, no matter what their identity was prior to us coming in their life. Israel saw something in that boy that she did not see. And we have a responsibility as Christians to help other people have new identities. Because maybe everyone else sees them as they're a lost cause. They'll never change. They'll never do things right. You know, they're always making mistakes. Maybe God has brought them into our lives so that we can rename them. So we can give them new identities, new hope. I also want you to see something else very significant that I got from other commentators. Many have pointed out how each name describes a part of Jesus. The first one, son of my sorrow. Isn't that a picture of Jesus dying upon the cross, a man of sorrows? And then he was renamed to be the son who sits at the right hand by the father himself. A new identity. It's powerful when you think of that. And little Benjamin had no idea that his his life would one day go on to be representative of the Lord himself, the Messiah. Verse 21, Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Notice that he's being called Israel at this moment. Have you caught that? It's not Jacob. He's living like Israel now. Kind of like when you read the New Testament and Jesus is dealing with Peter. You have Simon when he's messing up and you have Peter when he's doing the right thing. I think this is also a clue. We look at that and see that God is identifying him as Israel. Now, this sin is barely even mentioned. It's kind of weird when you think about it. It just kind of came out of nowhere, right? You think about all the things that could have been recorded during this time. In these two verses, God saw fit that this one particular sin from his son, Reuben, had to be documented for eternity. Okay, think about that. Couldn't we have skipped that verse, Lord? You really didn't. Why'd you waste the ink? You know, that didn't have to be in there. There's no explanation, no consequences. We don't know. I will tell you there will be severe consequences later on in his life, and we'll get there eventually. But it's, it's a picture of sometimes we think little sins are insignificant, sins that we do, and ah, oh, there's no consequences right away. There may be really bad consequences later. Because of your sin. We'll see that in Reuben's life. Verse 23, it kind of ends with some some facts here. It says, Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave, Bilhah, were Dan and Naphtali. 
The sons of Leah's slaves, Zilpah, were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aran. Jacob came to his father Isaac at memory of that place, that is in Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We can see here now because we have, they give us the list of all the sons. You know why? Because with Benjamin, the 12 tribes were complete. That's why we have now, these are the sons. These would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. We also see that after all those years of Jacob being separated from his father Isaac, the Lord was gracious to allow Isaac to see his, both of his sons at peace together and with all the blessings that God had poured out on their lives. Because remember, both those boys were separated from their father because of conflict. And at the end of, their, at the end of Isaac's life, God allowed both those sons to be back with him at peace. What a blessing to Isaac. But for today, I just want to ask you this one question. Has your new identity in Christ firmly taken root? Has your new identity in Christ firmly taken root? Or are you still going through the process of multiple do-overs, hoping that one day it's going to stick? Colossians 2 chapters I'm sorry chapter 2 verses 6 through 7 says So then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord continue to live in him being rooted and built up in him established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude Paul reminding them just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord your master continue to walk in him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. That's a whole sermon. As a matter of fact, I was going to do an entire camp based off of that one verse for, for the youth ministry. That's the goal for us as believers. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord, he is your master, you have to continue to walk in Him. You must be rooted in Him. You must be established in the faith. You must be built up in Him. Just as you were taught. How were you taught? By the Word of God. That's your teacher. Lord willing, we're all rooted, built up, and established in the faith. As we continue to live in Him, past that initial moment of salvation. Because like Israel, we all need that time when our new identity sticks. You, can't be, you cannot continue to put on that old man or that old woman. That has been taken off and it is gone. Your new identity is the one that God created when you were born again. And you are commanded to put on that old man or that new man or new woman. That is your new identity. Has it stuck or do you continually grab the old man or the old woman?
It has to stick, guys. You've got to be rooted and built up, established in the faith, in him. You must put on and leave on the new identity. No going back and forth. No Jacob and Israel. No Simon and Peter. The goal is your new identity. That's the one you walk in all the time. That's who you are now. The other person is gone. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the reminder as we look at Jacob and his struggles in maintaining that new identity. I thank you for the grace that you've shown in this passage, you know, that undeserved favor, that undeserved love that you gave him. Man, he blew it so many ways, and there's so many things that went wrong, Lord. And yet you initiated reconciliation. Father, I pray that you would initiate reconciliation with us. If we're distant from you, would you initiate that reconciliation? Would you draw us once again back to yourself? Would you help us to destroy the idols? Not just bury them, but destroy them, Lord. Would you help us to change our clothes and put on the new man? Would you help us to build the altar once again in the place where you used to be close? Would you remind us to go back to that place where you moved so mightily on our behalf? Would you allow us to pour fresh oil on it once again like we did so long ago in our life when we dedicated our life to you and all of our future? God, would you become that God once again that we have forgotten about? Become so real to us once again, Lord. I pray that you do that work in all of our lives, Lord. A fresh moving of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.